Kira Kotokatoa, welcome to this panel discussion. Part of a symposium organized by the University of Otago's Edgar Diabetes and Obesity Research Centre. What is it that makes it so hard to eat healthily? The panel and I were talking about their various areas of interest earlier and we agreed on one thing, the food system is broken. So we renamed the title of the panel, uh, the disordered food system, we thought we'd call it, uh, the cost of food, its original name, the cost in its very broadest sense of food. On the panel we have Professor Hugh Campbell, who's an agri-food specialist at the University of Otago's Centre for Sustainability. We have Dr. Matere Harwood, Director of Maori Health Research at Auckland Medical School. She's a member of Waitamata DHB. She's involved in the Papakura Marae Health Clinic and its pilot program, Manatu, focused on Maori and Pacific Island people with diabetes. Dr. Sally Mackay is Research Fellow at Auckland University's Medical and Health Science Faculty, lead author of the recent State of the Food Supply Study. And Deborah Manning is founder of Kiwi Harvest, a food rescue organization that delivers food that would otherwise be wasted to people who need it. Um, we are awash with food. It's everywhere. And it's what we want. Fast food, sugary drinks, takeaways, supermarket specials. The market is delivering. But it's not the right food, and it's making us sick. We have an eating disorder, a global issue. We're looking at whether it's in fact a food system disorder. And how do we get here and how could we fix it? It's become a cliche, of course, that we live in an obesogenic society. And I want to get each of your views, panelists, on that. And whatever you say, take it as read that someone, and it's going to be me, is going to say whatever happened to self-control. Yes, Matire, I'm going to be the victim blamer. <laughs> Let me start with Hugh. Um, an obesogenic society, whatever happened, poor people used to be thin and now they're fat. What went wrong? Uh, no nothing to do with that. Um, no, the obesogenic environment is a, very, uh, is, is a very important idea for how we try to understand the, the entire uh, system of problems that have created the compelling crisis we're now in, both in terms of diet, but also for, from my position, uh, the relationship, the intimate relationship now between a, a very, very compromised and problematic diet and extremely compromised and inappropriate and unsustainable forms of farming that supply the products to that diet. And, and, and for me, and I'll be interested to see where this uh, discussion goes, part of the pathway forward is not only about how we change diets, but how we change entire agri-food systems. And, and the pathway towards more diverse and sustainable diets must also somehow pass through a diverse and more sustainable land use. So you're not just looking at New Zealand, you're looking at the supermarket shelves and you're seeing stuff that's been imported that's chock full of corn syrup. Is that what you're saying? Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, it's cheap. And it's, and it's cheap. And so the, the key driver of uh, food policy and food politics over, uh, pretty well for the last 150 years has been building society around an ever-cheapening supply of food. And uh, it, it dr it's driven ecologically unsustainable outcomes on the land, eventually. Uh, and 
finally we are ending up having to pay the piper in terms of what it's done in terms of uh, compromised diets. Let's hold that thought because it's a global problem. So in terms of what we can do in New Zealand, I'm interested to know what, what you think. Um, Sally, what do you say? We certainly do live in an obesogenic environment and that's at a lot of different levels. So it starts at the sort of the wider regulation and policy levels. Um, for example, food companies can market unhealthy food to children. Um, we don't regulate that very well. It comes down to our schools, uh, our communities and our workplaces. Uh, in our schools, we have very few um, policies that have to be uh, put in place. So we might have water-only schools, but it's up to the school to make that decision. Um, and so if they decide not to, then... You think it should be mandatory I to do. only have water in schools? Well, we don't need anything but water in schools. So and I why do you think the schools are resistant? Sometimes they have other priorities, so it may just be that they haven't thought about it. Uh, it might be that their communities are resistant to it, or they might not want to be seen as the, the food police and thinking about what the children are bringing to school. Or it might be that they know that the kids are going to go around the corner and buy it from the shop. That's right. Anyway. Exactly. So, so it's safer to keep them on campus, as it were. Yeah. All right. Or they might be making profits from the school canteen, from the sugary drinks. But the point you seem to be making is that people don't know what's healthy food. Don't they know? Let me ask you, Marty, do they not know what's good for them and what isn't? I think people do know what's good for them and what's not, um, and that was certainly what was coming through on the interviews that we did with them. But I think you're right, the obesogenic environment is such that there's access to these unhealthy foods. Um, down in South Auckland, you go to many of the sports games with children in South Auckland, and that's what they get is a McDonald's voucher or, or a... Um, uh, I don't want to name the restaurant, but it's a restaurant where you get the huge big plates of food. Oh, um, where's that? Yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to me later. No. Um, yeah, well, that's right. We're incredibly hypocritical, right? Yeah. That means a whole lot of New Zealanders going, oh, you know, we're too fat, but at the same time, simultaneously, we're constantly doing things like that. I think our kids go to sports games. What do you think, Deborah? Well, in the space that I work in, uh, with food insecurity um, communities, it's not just about... Uh, the cost of food, it's about the cultural preferences for food, it's about uh, taste preferences also, it's um, large families, unemployment. It's more than just a single factor that's contributing to obesity. Obese children ha are getting lots of calories, they're just not getting the right sort of calories, the right nutrients, not the fresh fruit and vegetables. So, OK, let me do the thing I said that somebody would have to do. What happened to self-control, Deborah? Well, I don't think it's self-control. What I just was trying to get across is that they have to feed large families on small incomes, so they're choosing bulk staple foods that um, have the wrong type of calories in it for them, so it doesn't have all the nutrients. Um, it's not... I don't think... In, in the communities that we work in, it's about self-control. It's about sort of self-preservation, in a way. So when we see overweight kids wandering around eating chips and drinking sugary drinks, what do, we, what do we do? Do we think they don't know that's bad for them, they haven't learnt that's bad for them, they are too keen on it to stop? I mean, at some stage, there has to be personal responsibility. 
I'm worried he about... He just uh, swiveled yes. his head like he was on the exorcism just then. <laughs> what? I'm just imagining uh, us uh, deciding we're going to apply the marshmallow test of a childhood self-control to the well, consumers of New Well, that test was not scientifically rigorous, I no, hear, but wasn't. no, you're quite right. Yes, that's right. No, it's about as scientifically rigorous as the idea that we can, uh, we can pursue individual consumer choices to better outcomes. All right. So we are in control of what people want to sell to us. And of our, I mean, our, our control is limited by, um, like we said, self-preservation. If we learn, working two jobs, I've got mums who are leaving home at seven and then picking up the kids and quickly wanting to give them a snack so that they're not running ragged and then going off to a second job and there's nothing to eat at home, she's going to get the local takeaways, which in our neighbourhood is fried chicken and pizza and fish and chips. And is that both cheaper in time and money? Exactly. And You've done resource. costings on this, Sally. Is it cheaper to eat the fast food and the takeaways than to cook necessarily healthy food? I think people have the perception that it's cheaper. Is it true though? But um, the work that I did, it's not necessarily cheaper and sometimes it's more expensive, particularly if you're looking at those large fast food chains. But fish and chips was the exception and that is probably um, often a go-to meal in that it is a very cheap meal, it's very filling. Um, I actually had a summer student that uh, looked at the foods themselves, like she pulled the batter off the fish, and if, when you get fish and chips, half of the fish is actually fish, so you, you know, you're you buying a lot of uh, cheap flour and oil there as well. So yeah. you're getting very low-quality meal, even if it's cheap and with no vegetables. Cheap and filling. Mm. Presumably the food that you rescue, Deborah, a lot of it is fruit and vegetables. And it, does that... Are you able to encourage people to cook with those... I mean, how does it transfer? Yeah, so, so food rescue is about collecting surplus food that's good enough to eat but not to sell and diverting it away from landfill, compost or, or animal feed to feed humans instead. Um, we do that by delivering food to other social service agencies working in the community, providing food support. We don't actually give it to the end user. Um, and then they provide it to their clients and whanau and, and members of their community. But it's not just about giving people fresh food to eat, it's about providing them with the resources so that they can maximise the benefit of that food. Um, kitchens that don't have gas or, or electric hobs aren't going to be able to cook some of the food that we pass on. So it's, it's a bigger picture than just... So you provide them with the wherewithal? No, we don't, but that's why we give the food to social service agencies so that they can provide their wraparound services to their clients and make sure that they have all the things they need to maximise the benefit of the food they I mean, on. I don't think that occurs to many people, that, that literally some people don't have the wherewithal to cook proper food. Can you talk a bit about, about that? I've got a kitchen in my home, but I don't know how to use it, and I know that it's not functioning. I've got these bare cupboards. You know, what do I fill it in? What are the foods that I need to be able to cook more healthy kai at home in big amounts that are going to feed the entire whanau? Um, so, yeah, it's um, supporting people to be able to wrap around all the different things. It's not just one, here's some vegetables, but actually, are you able then to take that and make it into a healthy meal? It, it seems perverse, doesn't it, that we don't understand how so many people living in this country do not have the wherewithal, whether it be the money or the resources or the equipment, 
to make meals that we all take for granted. Yes, I think there's a second dimension to it, isn't there, which is very closely associated, and that's the having access to being able to grow or produce your own food. Mm-hmm. And so I think in uh, a lot of communities around the world which are food insecure, one of the key determinants is not only do you have the means to cook, but do you have the means to produce. And in New Zealand, we've traditionally felt that uh, people from all across the socioeconomic strata have always had access potentially to a home garden or the like. And that's increasingly no longer the case. And I think uh, it's, it's not only a, a, a case of just through lack of practice, you lose the embodied skills of how to, how to manage a home garden, uh, but there's just lack, lack of access to space. And so in that sense, it's intimately bound into our housing crisis. Because we don't have big gardens anymore. Nope. No, we don't. And also we have a less stable population in the cities who are renting, short-term renting, maybe aren't even lucky enough to have a home. Um, that all limits your imagination in terms of how you can improve your health. What do you think, Sally, the government could do as an intervention to improve the order of the food system? We've been talking about a sugar tax, for example. Is that um, a tiny improvement or a major one? You can't just say a sugar tax on its own is going to be the way. Um, So you've got to look at all those different levels from the home, uh, the community, the schools, workplaces, and then the wider environment as well. Um, So, yeah, so a sugar tax uh, can... Well, it's been shown in other countries that it reduces consumption if it's at a particular level. Uh, And then there's things like uh, subsidies off fruit and vegetables as well, which in tandem with the sugar tax could help. But then if people still don't have the time... um, to plan their healthy meals, they don't have a, a stable home to go to and put the foods in the fridge, uh, they're working two jobs, they don't have time to do the shopping and the planning, then... It just looks punitive without being helpful. Mm. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. What do you think, Deborah? Mm, yes, I agree. I agree. From, from our point of view, um, from the food rescue point of view, which is really my expertise in, in, on this panel, it's clearly not an academic like these wonderful people are, um, it's... For me, it's about how do we incentivise businesses to not throw away perfectly good food or growers when they've met their contract requirements to to not plough that product or or vegetable back into the ground, but how do we incentivise them to do the right thing and give it away to feed those people that need it the most, the people that aren't buying it in the supermarkets? Um, And I think it would be a really nice thing to do to consider, to have the government consider perhaps uh, tax incentives at the moment. You know, you know, if you make a donation to a charity uh, over $5, you'll get a tax receipt for that and you'll get a third of it back. Well, it's only if you give a cash donation. So why can't we make it if you give an in-kind product that you can receive the same benefit? That would incentivise them more so than the French legislation that has um, banned supermarkets from disposing of food in, into landfill and bins and instead compelled them to donate it to organisations to feed people, which is trying to achieve the same thing, but what all that does is create a whole lot of problem for those organisations that they're passing the food on because it becomes a great big dump without any thought or consideration given to the type and quality of food. Right, so you always need those mediators in between. All right. Um, what do you think, uh, Materia, about... Um, a, a severe limit on fast food outlets in some areas, all areas. 
Do you think that's feasible or advisable? Um, I think, I mean, I would like to see less uh, fast food retailers in some areas. In Auckland, we have Lincoln Road and a fantastic study there showing, I can't even remember, it was every five or ten metres there was a fast food outlet. And certainly at Papa Kuramarai, if I want to go and get lunch, I can walk five minutes around the road. And, you know, most of our community lives there. They don't have cars. There's no buses going around. Um, I can walk five minutes to the group of shops, which are fish and chips, bakery selling, fried chicken and um, fatty foods all in there. Or I can hop in a car, which I have, and 20 minutes to the mm. supermarket. And sometimes I've even been at the supermarket and I have whānau come out to me and to my car um, and ask, can they get a ride home? They, uh, these are strangers who are there with their little babies who are trying to live well and you know do the supermarket shopping for their whānau and asking a complete stranger, no shame at all, can I get a ride 20 minutes up the road back to my own home? Because it's too difficult to access, whereas when I'm driving them there, you know, passing the same fish and chip shop, the same Kentucky Fried, same pizza place. So I would love to see a reduction in fast food retail. And replaced by something else, if, right? Yeah, something like a co-op with fruit and veggies, and it would be fantastic. We mm. were talking at lunchtime that we've got Griffin's Food Factory, and I'm, I'm sorry if there's any Griffin's people here in the um, room, but they wonderfully think that they can um, provide the leftover biscuits to us, the Girl Guide biscuits that don't get sold. So please buy your Girl Guide biscuits. No, because they get dumped on us at the Marae, thinking that this is what Seems an act of generosity. Exactly, but okay. it's, you see the kids walking up the road with a big box of biscuits munching out, and um, it's, not, it's not a good look. All right, so we need government intervention. We need to replace a lot of the fast food outlets with people selling, you know, whole grain bread and fruit. That seems unlikely, doesn't it? Well, I think uh, <laughs> the, uh, the way in which planners and policy folk tend to try and approach this is, that, is around the concept of food deserts. Uh, and uh, internationally there's a recognition that particularly in uh, poor communities uh, where there's been a massive amalgamation of food retailers uh, from small get slowly amalgamated up into one large supermarket and then the supermarket pulls out. Mm. And they're left, with, uh, they're left in a highly kind of food retail compromised space. Um, and so I think uh, the issue for planning urban spaces is, is how you... Uh, how you sequence 10, 20 to 30 years of planning for food retailing in a particular area to make sure you don't get the food desert effect taking place. Can I just add there that in Auckland we did look at that and it's not so much food deserts. In the highly deprived areas there's more of all types of retail outlets. So there was more fruit and veggie places, more um, of the unhealthy as well as the healthy. So And maybe that's just a nature of, I don't know, the roading or something like that, but... So there time. are alternatives there, it's mm. just that people don't use them as much. Yeah, well, th this was, I guess, a mapping exercise rather than thinking about an individual's community, but um, there's certainly more retail areas in the highly deprived areas, healthy or unhealthy. All right. There's, there's something wrong with the system in which food is so cheap, as Hugh was explaining, that so much of it gets wasted as Deborah's work in Kiwi Harvest illustrates. How can we make good food more available, bad food less available, and less food wasted? Otherwise, we're just 
picking at the edges of a system that's broken, aren't we? Yes, and, and that's the necessary next step past the willpower question. Um, Which so nobody's answered, of course. No, I, I, thought the, uh, <laughs> I, I thought the equating of it with a marshmallow test was fair enough. Um, so the, the general conundrum with, uh, with, with strategic pricing of foods or policy interventions to change the pricing of foods is how you, you, you go through sugar taxes to try and make your target bad foods more expensive, and then how do you, uh, how, how do you uh, position particular incentives to make uh, good foods cheaper? And if you look around the world, there are various attempts in Europe where they're trying to roll out frameworks, uh, but those, those policy frameworks are elaborating in countries which have an established political culture where it is okay to subsidise agriculture and it is okay for the government to intervene in a social democratic sense into large aspects of your food system simultaneously to try and make more sustainably produced foods, more fresh foods, fruits and vegetables available into urban food markets whilst slapping a sugar tax on something. It's the European way. Which European country do you think we should aspire to be? Well, if it was my personal preference, I'd go for France. Uh, but uh, in terms of actual food policy, um, <laughs> actually, and also in terms of aspirational things, I think the, the, the social movements that have emerged around in countries like Italy around slow food have actually been very interesting, mm. uh, which is not a policy intervention, but it's a, a, just a, a wider social movement of people collectively trying to embrace... Uh, heritage varieties of foods, but also uh, linking producers and consumers more closely, especially with small producers and, and, and niche consumers, and then celebrating the social experience of eating. So as a, as a sociologist, I like, I like that example. Um, I think uh, Germany and across the Scandinavian countries, there's a more kind of integrated social democratic approach to, uh, uh, to these things, but food costs a lot more. And they earn more to pay for it? They certainly do, yes. Yeah. Do you think we've got a problem with binge eating like we have a problem with binge drinking, which the Europeans don't tend to have? Do you think that's part of our... I'm worried you're looking at me as you're asking that question because I'm hoping the no, expertise on that... I into the distance. Oh, good, good. Uh, so someone else in the panel can uh, take that one. Well, it just <laughs> seems to be I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about Tanga de Fenua, really. I'm talking about the, the, the settlers who've brought with them this idea that if they've got plenty, they should eat it and drink it all at the same time. Anybody got any views on that? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> that was a dead well, end. The word settler it? certainly uh, triggered me. Um, so in, in a sense, um, a lot of... Sorry. Uh, no, 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 in a good way, in an academic, academically triggered. Um, so, I mean, there were things that arrived with um, European settlement that have, have locked in patterns mm. that have both prospered and plagued us ever since. And uh, part of that change in food culture that arrived, and, and of course a, a, a massive and, and politically and ecologically traumatic change in land use patterns, was starting an increasing sense in which you treated food as a commodity, as, as a privately owned good that you produced for sale. And I think that, that was one of the huge ruptures with, uh, with previous ways of understanding land use and food as uh, something that was intrinsically owned by community and it was, was, was an obligation that was collectively owned by community and held by community. So I think that, that yeah, the settlers did bring that. I don't know whether they brought binge eating. Um, they did bring things like pork bone and puha and doughboys and, you know, things like that that I think have been taken up by 
by indigenous people. They've bought, you know, those sorts of foods that where people are living rurally, where they've had to um, purchase in order for them, if they're not able to access foods for, um, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables or fresh meat and things or, f or fish. So um, I always remember stories being told to me by Komatua of people working in the forestry and they would be paid monthly and they would buy their sack of flour, their sack of sugar, their sack of butter and they would live on that and they would, you know, use it up and so that they'd be starving for a week before they got their next monthly pay of those particular items. And so they did learn, there is, I think, a culture of some learnt behaviour around food that's now become embedded to um, who we think we are. It's very hard, isn't it, when habits become embedded and now they're embedded even further by the way the market operates. And, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how much government intervention can ever be possible. Do you know, Sally? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Do you imagine? Because how far can this go? I mean, people are demanding a change and there seems to be an acceptance that we can't make the change on our own because we live, as we were saying, in an obesogenic society. So how, how can we possibly find a way out of it? Well, I think government has a responsibility to educate children while they're at school, to, to put money into school programmes like Garden to Table that actually um, want to teach children the benefits of eating healthily and not just by growing but by then... Um, processing and, and cooking and eating that food. We are a very unusual country internationally in that we, we are the most food export oriented country in the world, exporting over 90% of what we produce. And so there's, there's a sense there's two food worlds in yeah, New yeah. Zealand. There's everything we send away and then there's everything that's happening here. And I think that um, you know, when, when Deborah's asking for the government to get more involved, that's quite a big stretch for New Zealand because food, food and agriculture policy in New Zealand is generally about how to produce more and send it somewhere else as lucratively as possible. And, the, and turning around to ask, what is a local food policy in New Zealand? Mm -hmm. How do you build up sort of local food supplies, food sheds, as, as some people call them? Uh, it's it's just, a, just drops into a policy space that doesn't yet exist in New Zealand. And that's part of what we have to invent is going forward from here is joining up particular areas of policy and academic insight to start filling in what the models might be in those spaces. There's nothing sitting there waiting on the shelf for us to pick up. No. Deborah, when you operate in areas like Auckland, right, mm. where do you get your food that you need to rescue from and where does it go? Okay, well we get it from every part of the food value chain and the food value chain starts at the growing level and it finishes in the consumer's home and ev all the way along that food value chain food is lost or wasted for various and different reasons. Um, we collect it from them or they deliver it to us and then we distribute it back out to social service agencies in the community and across New Zealand providing food support for people in need in their community. And these are food banks, large and small, refuges, night shelters, missions, um, down to kindergartens and other small community groups. Our only requirement is that they receive the food, take care of it to maintain the integrity and the safety of the food and use it to feed people in need in their community at no cost. Is, is there a way that 
the surplus fruit and vegetables, for example, could be sold more cheaply to people? Why is it either pristine and to the market or not pristine and chucked unless you turn up? Yeah, well, the countdown supermarket stores have tried and are running what's called the Ugly Bunch initiative. Uh, we saw a lot of it about a year ago. We don't see it so much now in supermarkets, but that was where they celebrated um, ugly-looking fruit and vegetables, the ones that had the funny little bumps and blemishes on them that actually made them more endearing and probably... If more you like want to fall in love with your vegetables. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get your children to eat a vegetable, make it look more human and, and they will um, probably eat it more readily. But you think that might have been a little phase? Yeah, I think, I think probably it was. They put a lot of money into the marketing and the celebration of that and they had specific bins that were the, the odd bunch bins. Um, but you don't see a lot of it now, and you don't, certainly don't see it in all of the stores. I think it was a great initiative, and I'm sorry that it, it isn't... Well, unless it's carrying on, it was a flash in the PR pan. Then, there are it? certainly some stores that do have it, but not every store has it. I was going to ask you, Sally, about Countdown's initiative not to allow under-16-year-olds to buy energy drinks. Now, that's, you know, if you're a 16-year-old or under you're going to go elsewhere and buy energy drink. Does that kind of small change, albeit to a large supermarket chain, does that make a difference, do you think? Well, I think it makes a statement, but as you say, they can just go to the dairy down the road and buy the energy drink instead. So either other retailers need to follow suit or the government needs to regulate that. And I think in the UK, and someone might correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that they do ban sales of energy drinks to children under 16, so it's possible to do it. Um, I mean, the government hasn't even regulated vaping. You know, how can we possibly expect the government to regulate anything to do with food? It seems beyond imagination, doesn't it? Yet other countries do it quite often. So is it, Hugh, do you think that we've laid ourselves so open to the market that we can't even imagine subsidising food? You mentioned that earlier. We couldn't possibly do that? I have this hunch that we're rolling about two to three decades behind Europe because many of these problems were faced in Europe. What do you mean? They've got the French diet. Uh, yes, more than the French diet, also the, uh, the, Danish, uh, the Danish health scare in 1981 when they discovered um, uh, toxic uh, agrochemicals agri in, the, in the Copenhagen water supply and that caused a massive public outcry. And, uh, did that was, change the way they... It did, it absolutely did. Farmed? Uh, yes, yes, the, uh, the, the Denmark rolled out a huge package of it. They became the country that most vehemently supported our conversion to organic agriculture and then that transitioned into various other things. And it seems that in terms Doesn't of... Doesn't necessarily mean healthy food. Not, not necessarily, that's right. You can, um, yes, you can bring on a heart attack by eating the wrong organic foods just as effectively as any other foods. But it did help with the problem of pesticides in the groundwater. Europe seems to have been rolling out these frameworks in which public health and diet and uh, farming have been much more carefully linked together. They've, uh, they've un unrolled the platforms of multifunctionality. But they've done that because there is a general social and political acceptance of subsidisation. And they're not subsidies for prices, they're subsidies for environmental outcomes and food quality outcomes. And it seems to me that eventually in New Zealand, because we, we, we exist in a world dominated by agricultural production for distant markets, that eventually you've got to work out who pays for these better qualities. 
And uh, the people in Sainsbury's are probably not going to pay that much for these better qualities. So in, the, in a sense, in the end, government has to act. Or price the food according to the real cost of it. Yes, that's right. Which would mean we wouldn't sell any. Uh, we... Oh, I, I know, I disagree. I think we would probably make more careful decisions around and consider what we're purchasing and um, think about the fact that this is, you know, costing me something and um, I need to be careful about what I'm putting into my body now that it, you know, if it's coming out of my wallet and not going to be able to purchase something else. If I speak first about the export industries, uh, responding to your little uh, challenge there, Kim. Um, so... Uh, in terms of us producing food that's more expensive, mm. that's what we want to do as an agricultural producing country. We want more expensive food we to be sold. We don't want to price ourselves off the market. Well, uh, the model I would push would be uh, the one that's been uh, spearheaded by the kiwifruit industry. I think Zespri is one of our most interesting export uh, uh, operators. New Zealand produces 30% of the world's kiwifruit but earns 60% of the revenue generated by kiwifruit in the world. And so the reason why our fruit is worth twice as much uh, as, as anyone else's in the market, and we've locked up the top end of the market, is because they put a huge investment into environmental process, management, food safety and quality, right. and then branded it accordingly. Well, so good, for, good, for exports, yes, absolutely. Good luck with that when it comes to meat and dairy products. Yes, yes, forces, I, I receive your good wishes. The forces and, of darkness uh, are upon that, aren't yes. they? I mean, we're talking about diet, we're talking about sustainability, we're talking about health, it's the whole works. Well, I think for the dairy industry, uh, the, the industry that dare not speak its name, um, <laughs> I, I think Rod Orham's been uh, putting together a really, what I think is a, a credible and accessible analysis of about four pathways forward for dairy, particularly in light of the revolution of artificial proteins that's coming towards us. The dairy industrial model is not going to survive that revolution. A yeah, high value, yes, absolutely. A high value, uh, better branded, more environmentally friendly dairy pr product, which we totally and absolutely can produce in New Zealand. What is it? Is, can, will survive. Yeah, no, we can produce very high quality dairy products. Oh, it's but just probably not going. We can carry on doing that. Any less of it? Oh, no, is that what you're saying? That's right, yes. Um, that's right. And uh, I, I think that there are, there are pathways forward uh, for the dairy industry uh, which are entirely viable, but they just have to be thinkable. There's a thought that's kind of emerging, and it's, it's an embryonic thought at this stage, so I don't know whether I can express it. But are you suggesting that if we could get our food production in New Zealand more aligned to us as opposed to overseas markets, it would become more varied, less environmentally unsustainable and healthier. So, so I much prefer you giving my answers for me than being devil's advocate. That's no. exactly right. Yeah. Is it? No, that's exactly right, yes. yes. By, by some kind of mysterious symbiotic process of feeling better about what we're growing and eating? Well, I think that there are some obvious alignments between diet and sustainability that will come around more diverse production, which includes a greater portfolio of, of products and through a greater series of uh, greater variety of systems. That, that both suits New Zealand as a highly diverse landscape, for one thing. But I think it also helps support uh, more diverse diets. And any, and the industries are 
often the industries that became tuned to a, to a domestic market in New Zealand and weren't just the legacy industries of selling large volumes of commodity overseas, surprisingly were the ones that became sensitised to these issues. And, uh, you know, the crazy experiments in wine production in New Zealand that were just insane in the 1970s and became a titan in the 1980s, they were selling locally. They were harvesting all sorts of local knowledge, particularly from European migrants coming to New Zealand. And it was what happened, was the crazy experiments in domestic wine consumption in New Zealand that broke out internationally and made it into the, the billion-dollar-plus titan it is now. Are you disapproving yeah. of that as well? No, no, I'm not. No, okay. I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I'm no. a big fan. Okay, yeah. so industrial wine production or industrial grape production doesn't have the same impact as industrial dairy production? Uh, yes, trickily worded there. Uh, no, it does. Um, and so I think that... You just uh, happen to like drinking wine more than you like... I <laughs> think that... What, what I'm going to rely on is the fact that there is a robust diversity of opinion, an empowered opinion in the wine industry, and there are people advocating for how they want sustainable wine to be done. But you're right, you, c you can't take certain industries out of landscapes and then replace them with industrial alternatives, which is a debate that's playing out about forestry taking over the East Coast at the moment. One of the things we haven't talked about, and... and and we've all said in various ways that the choice of the consumer has become limited one way or another, whether it be by poverty or lack of education or the sheer power of the market to manipulate people's tastes. But Sally, you've put some thought into labelling food and its contents and find, you know, doing the tick and if it's healthy and giving people more information. Given what we've been saying and given what we know about human nature, what advantage would that give us? So having the, the health star rating... up front, yep. Yeah, so at the moment, it's, uh, as everyone knows, it's voluntary, and work that we've done looking at the products in the supermarkets is about 20% of products that have the health star rating on them. And... Um, some recent analysis that I've just done shows that they do tend to be on the more healthy products, uh, so they're selectively put on, which is you know, probably what we thought anyway. It can be from half a star to five stars, All right. and then companies choose whether they display the label, but so we can calculate the rating So even if you've only got half a star, which means that you're not very healthy at all, mm. they still display it? Well, they can choose to. But do they? No, so that's what I'm saying. So only the healthy ones display it. M more so the and healthy so ones. And so you should be able to persuade people that those that don't have any star rating shouldn't be eaten. Well, if, if every food displayed the health star rating, then people would be able to decide for themselves. It's easily um, fiddled with, though, isn't it? Uh, it's under review at the moment, and yes. if those changes go through, then I think it will be a more robust system. I mean, interestingly enough, the Health Minister, David Clark, when he was in opposition, he said that the labelling system could be rigged by manufacturers, and he's currently in talks with the Food Industry Task Force trying to reformulate processed foods. So they might be going away from the labelling system towards the reformulation. Well, they, they go hand in hand because you... You can do both. You can reformulate and obviously display the rating. And some companies do reformulate to display a higher health star rating. And we all know the classic example of Nutrigrain, having a four or four and a half stars but still being very high in sugar because they put more fibre in. Right. But the, um, if the 
recommendations in the review take place, then sugar will be more penalised, so Nutri-Grain won't display such a high health star rating. Is there any evidence that the star rating and the labelling of ingredients makes any difference to people's purchasing? Often with labelling, it's the people that have the time to stop and look at the labels where it makes the biggest impact. Um, though the health star rating, you don't need to interpret it, all you need to know is that the more stars, the better. So there is um, some evidence that it does help, but it, like I said before, and we always say it's, it's only one of the many solutions. But I think that consumers actually have a right to know how healthy their food is, and so it's a human rights issue as well that you know, our foods are labelled well. Um, and another side of that is the added sugar labelling, which is under consultation at the moment as well. I don't know. I mean, your study, the New Zealand State of the Food Supply study, found that most packaged food in the supermarket is unhealthy, right? Yes, so there's different ways of uh, classifying unhealthy, of course. And so one of the things we looked at was how processed it was and found that 70% of it is what we call ultra-processed. So it's a long way from what it originally looked like. It's generally got various additives um, and usually added fat or salt or sugar. So a lot of the packaged food, yes, is unhealthy. And so by, by making a rating system, which means that, some unhealthy food is going to get quite a lot of ticks and then you work down from there, you're kind of misleading the public. You're going to be inevitably misleading the public into thinking that they're buying healthier food when in fact it's still unhealthy. Well, hopefully the ones that have the higher health star rating are the healthier options, but um, it's just for packaged food and there's all the fruit and vegetables. Yeah, yeah, but I'm only talking about packaged food. Mm. And, there's, and there's heaps of it. Yes. And most of it's unhealthy. And yet... You know, what are we doing about it? Well, we're just, you know, giving it a little star rating now and again, and it's not even mandatory, it's voluntary. Exactly, and we've got no targets, uh, nationwide targets for reformulating food. Like in the UK, they have targets for reducing the sodium and the added sugar in foods. We don't have that here. So having some targets, particularly for sodium, um, would really help. Yeah. That are government-led targets. Sodium, what else? Added sugar. Portion size, so that is a, a, it's not as easy to do. So right. the, the sodium and the sugar would be the main two things. All right. And then they wouldn't taste so nice and then people wouldn't buy them. Well... I mean, I'm sorry, but that's what happens, right? Well, you have to reduce it very slowly so that people get accustomed to the change in taste. You know, it's like back in the day when people started eating lentils a lot. You just go, oh, my God. <laughs> lentils. Um, Dad... Before they, you know, managed to make them tasty, they were just lentils, right? And that glob. Um, Deborah, you must get food, you must rescue food that is not healthy per se. Uh, certainly, we get offered um, highly sugared drinks that we turn down. Do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, we prioritise healthy food, we prioritise fresh food. Donated dried and tin products uh, to food banks is a system that's working well. You see the bins in the supermarkets and things like that. But nobody had been collecting um, or finding a, another alternative for perishable foods. Um, there are food rescues all over New Zealand in your towns and cities. There'll be food rescue organisations, large and small, working, um, using um, refrigerated trucks and, and 
on a big scale and little chilli bins on a small scale to rescue perishable food. Now, the problem with perishable food rescue is that you have to maintain the integrity of the food. So it's not as easy as you think. It's not just picking up the food and delivering it somewhere else. It's about having that food that is considered to be um, a waste product in the, in the retail chain kept in its prime condition and safe until it is passed on to a food rescue organisation where it is then transported in refrigerated vehicles and then passed on again or stored in the same conditions to keep, keep it safe. So it's not as easy as it sounds and there's a lot more factors that need to be considered than just picking up food and delivering it. No. I, I, there are organisations, I heard of one the other day, that collects up fruit that's kind of past its best and they cook it up and they make it into jam. But that's got so much sugar in it, right? We don't want jam, do we? No, we don't want jam. You we were nodding, we, and then we, you started shaking we, your head. No, 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 I, I, I was agreeing with you that mm. there definitely are organisations that do that, mm. and it's not what we want. What we want is to be able to access that food before it becomes so poor in quality that it can't be eaten by humans and get it to the people out there in the first place. All right. Is is the is there one thing? Let me ask you, Matilda. Is the one thing that you think would improve the situation in terms of the food system ameliorating our dreadful situation of diabetes? Uh, no, there's <laughs> not one thing. I mean, that's the trouble. Everywhere you turn, there's a but, but, but. Where are we going to get the biggest bang for our buck? And it is going to be at the political level, but it needs to be within communities um, driving some of that change. But as you have come back to your point, um, people's choice, how can we support individual choice? Do we have to? I think we have to support that. I think we've come to a, a crisis, and that's the whole point of us wanting to come here and hear potential solutions, is that we want to do something about it. Um, we do have time for questions, but if you want to ask a question, please come down to the microphone because we haven't got a roving one. Kirsten Capel from the University of Otago. Now, there's one thing that sort of we've touched a little bit on today, and that's alcohol. And alcohol's loaded with calories. Yeah. Um, and it's also part of our export market. So I'm just wanting to know what the panel, where they see that fits into the picture of obesity and our poor nutrition. Yeah, good question. Anybody like to address that? No, sorry. Oh. I was, <laughs> no, I was thinking it's part of the yeah. urban planning. You know, when we talked about, you know, where the fast food shops are in our neighbourhood, next right next door is an, a liquor outlet. Yeah, and so it's um, had huge impact on our community. It brings with it drinking issues, the alcohol issues, but then injuries, violence, and everything else um, alongside. So I think as part of any urban planning around how um, food retail is distributed in communities, we need to think about alcohol too. If um, if there were to be a levy or a tax on sugary drinks, why wouldn't that include alcohol? It's already quite heavily taxed. Do we need to tax it more? Yes. I I'll plead the fifth <laughs> at that moment and uh, <laughs> well, look at I the mean, other panellists. If, if, if you accept that the consumption of alcohol needs to reduce for whatever reason, then whatever worked for tobacco would presumably work for alcohol. Why would you be averse to that, Hugh? He shifted uneasily in his seat. 
Do you want time to think? Yes, I definitely want time <laughs> to think about that one. Um, but I think the, the regulatory regime around alcohol in New Zealand is kind of crazy in some ways. Mm. And uh, I, I must say I'm a little wrong-footed because I tend to think of this as a public health issue rather than a dietary issue. But uh, diabetes and obesity is a public health yes, issue. Yes, oh, certainly is. I think there's been a lost opportunity in terms of regulating um, opening hours for pubs and uh, clubs. I think that... Uh, I, I may have just become a curmudgeonly middle-aged person, but uh, I don't think we need those things to be open to the length of the hours that they are, and we can see the public health effects of that in Dunedin, uh, as elsewhere in New Zealand, of course. So I think that's an area where we could regulate a lot more carefully. I think that a, an increased tax on alcohol in a dietary sense would have a particularly specific effect in terms of making purchasing of alcohol from supermarkets less attractive. And I think that could have a very significant and interesting effect. Martha, would you, would you want a big hike in the price of alcohol? Um, yes, I think something along that line would be good. Uh, my name's Danny. I'm a PhD student right now that's looking at the role of, of engaging youth in uh, preventing prediabetes. So my question for you is uh, how, can, or how do you engage youth in the work that you do or what do you see as uh, potential for youth? Thank you. I was thinking of dumpster divers, divers while you were talking. Oh, were I young again, I'd be diving into that dumpster. Do you dumpster dive? I had a little phase. <laughs> <laughs> but it was back in Canada, so I don't know if that changes the legal implications of my behaviour. It's perfect, right? It's, no, it's free food, it's saving food, and it's breaking the law just a little bit, which is really... <laughs> Always perfect. Always um, perfect. Sorry, I interrupted you. What's the, uh, the answer? Okay, engaging so, so Kiwi Harvest uh, engages youth uh, around, around food by supporting organisations that are providing educational programmes for youth because we know that if we teach them to grow and to, and to cook and to eat food together... Um, then they'll be much more intimately connected to the food. Because let's not forget, food is not just about the price of it and the nutritional value of it. Food is about, is about the sharing and the caring and the experience and the dignity and the conversation. Um, when you sit at a table, nobody can see whether you're wearing shoes or not um, if you're sharing food. So it doesn't really matter who you are. It brings people together. And so... Yeah, to answer your question, we support youth programs um, with our food as a priority, as one of our priorities. Sally, any comment? Uh, well, I was going to pick up on a point before about the regulation of unhealthy marketing to children, because that is something that we've been monitoring at the University of Auckland, and we do have a, um, a code. Uh, it's a voluntary code, and research that we've found, well finds that it really doesn't make any difference. Um, we looked at TV ads three years, or I think three, four years ago, before the code came in. We've just repeated that study, and there has been no change in the, in the number of unhealthy food ads because the code really only regulates when mostly most of the audience is children, but that's actually not when they're watching TV. They're watching it during peak hours when most of the audience is adults, yet that's when the most children are watching. Yeah. Um, when I talk to my students and I ask them who can you think of uh, food industry that sponsors that are, have unhealthy food that are sponsors, they can come up with lots of answers. And when I say what about healthy food, it's usually um, silence. So, yeah, I'd like to see change there too.
We have been talking about the cost of food in its broadest sense, the disordered food system, with Dr. Sally Mackay, Deborah Manning, Professor Hugh Campbell, and Dr. Matare Harwood. Thank you for coming. <laughs>